Our passage this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? The word of the Lord. Um, Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad that you are here. If you're new, um, there's going to be all kinds of people around already and will be. Uh, You can talk to and get connected with. You can go to the Connect Desk. You can talk to one of us uh, today. There's uh, four pastors here, a pastoral resident, and lots of staff as well. Um, Wanted to thank Sarah for her ministry to us on Sunday mornings. We we do really appreciate that. Um, Three boys under five and a husband. She forgot to mention that, so that might be the most difficult part. At any rate, um, really appreciate that. Also... You could be praying for me today. Uh, I have to say the name Mephibosheth maybe 25 times today during the message, and, and uh, it's, it's not going to be easy. Uh, before we get there, a couple of uh, quick announcements. One is uh, for this Wednesday night. Hope you remember that this is uh, our night with Marcus Doe. Uh, it'll be 6.30 to 8. You need to RSVP because we're going to have food. We'll also have child care, uh, but it'll be a great time getting to know Marcus. He's one of our pastors down in Tucson, he's started a ministry called We Reconcile, and he's just got an incredible story that I wanted to be able to share with our congregation. And then on uh, October 22nd, this is an all-redemption event. It's going to be a conference on a Saturday morning from 9 to 2.30 out at uh, Redemption Gilbert. Uh, Jay Stringer, who has written the book Unwanted, is going to be there leading this conference, and we have a video to show you about that conference. Someone other than your spouse, or being in a marriage with a dead bedroom. 
yet, if that's for you, this conference is for you to be able to stop you. This is much bigger. Really, it's something that affects us all, right? Vicky? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I advertise is we're talking about the things that have been wrapped in shame, that have been kept in secrecy, and we're bringing them to the right. But this isn't only for people who struggle. This is for everybody. Whether you are working with teens, leading a small group, walking with your neighbor, this is for you. The hope of this conference is that what if sexual difficulties are not a license to shame, but actually offer a roadmap to healing? We're excited to bring Jay Stringer. He's a Christian therapist, the leading expert on this topic. He's done groundbreaking research with over 3,800 people, and is one of the most amazing uh, people I've heard on this topic, but speaking really well to it. One of the things he's found is that often our unwanted behaviors are rooted in deeper, unaddressed parts of our story. And that many of the deeper things that we're looking for in sex are actually deeper things that are ultimately meant to be fulfilled and found in God. And so this is going to be a exciting opportunity that I really want to be able to take advantage of. I've seen how talking about this seems to be a catalyst to a deeper life together with God. Sexual brokenness doesn't have to have the last word on your story. Mm-hmm. It's a counselor I have seen people be helped and healed, and because of that, we are so excited to have you join us. All right, so that is uh, Saturday, the 22nd of October. Uh, the er- If you would uh, look at, at the front of your seat, the QR cord card on that, um, the QR code on the card, uh, you can just use your phone there, and that'll take you to the events page, and that'll uh, show you the Marcus Doe event. That'll also, you'll, it'll get you to this sexual wholeness conference and anything else that's uh, happening here that will allow you to be able to register. Uh, the sexual wholeness conference is $35 per person or 60 a couple until October 2nd. That's the early bird special. Then it goes up to $45 per person after that. So you'll want to um, uh, register soon if you're planning to go to that. There will be a lunch also uh, provided there. And if you're thinking that Josh Butler from Tempe looks familiar, um, maybe this will help you. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell went into witness protection six (laughs) years ago. And so that's where he ended up as Josh Butler. So just wanted to let you know that. So let me pray, and then we'll get into today's text. Our holy God, thank you for who you are. We want to praise you for who you are right now. We want to remember who you are. We, we want to recognize you as king. And we also want to remember and, and praise you for what you've done for us through your son Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection that you have saved us. And God, also for what you're doing for us now, how you, how you have shown us favor, not only in this congregation, not only in Redemption Church, but also just your bride. And so we thank you uh, for that. And, and even in that favor, you also show us your discipline, because discipline is part of your love. So help us to understand that as well. So we recognize who you are, what you've done for us, and what you're doing for us now. And now we just welcome your Holy Spirit into this space. We, we ask that your Spirit would, uh, would be the light in the darkness that we see in this world, and that your Spirit would illuminate your word uh, during this message. And God, as I pray... Uh, all the time, I just pray that somehow you'd move me out of the way so that your word and who you are would be in the forefront. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me review, as we have every week in this series, because it's a narrative series that's mostly chronologically going through the lives of these three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and we're kind of right in the middle of, of King David's story right now. Uh, he is firmly ensconced now as the king over all of Israel. 
uh, and the ark has been moved to David's home base, uh, and it's been decided to eventually build the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, That was decided, we looked at uh, that a little bit last week as well, after the ark was moved uh, to its rightful place. Uh, the, the situation with the ark, though, is that it'll be decades before the, I, I'm sorry, the situation with the temple is that it will be decades before the temple actually gets built. It will be built under the reign of David's son, uh, Solomon, but David's the one that kind of gets that process going. And so now, for David, it's time to rule and to govern and to guide. And our text today is 2 Samuel chapter 9. And and if you have your Bibles or your phones or whatever, just turn there and we're going to camp there today. There won't be any moving around uh, today and it'll be good for you to be able to follow along. But before we wrestle that to the ground, I I just want to give you a little summary of chapter 8. And chapter 8 itself is sort of a summary. It summarizes two things. The first thing that chapter 8 summarizes is how God gives David military victory after military victory after military victory over not only the Philistines, but also the Moabites and the Zobahites and the Syrians and the Edomites. So what God has done with David now is he's made him into something far better than any of these Marvel heroes that some of you seem to obsess so much about. So they should make a movie about David with with God actually as the power. But Um, But it's interesting because also it's important to tell this story because all of these peoples that David conquers began to pay tribute now to Israel and to David. So tribute is another word for tax. Thank you very much, Joe. So our elder knows that that means taxes. So they're paying taxes now uh, to Israel and to David's administrations. And and David in turn dedicates all of this tribute to the Lord. So David is still... He's still really connected with the Lord. We haven't gotten to when David starts to kind of fall off the God bandwagon, uh, which we will get to next week with David and Bathsheba. Anyway, uh, the second thing that it summarizes is there's an explanation in chapter 8 and a listing of all the people with which David fills his cabinet posts. So it's a summary of David's administration, his priests, his secretaries, his security detail, his public relations firm, everybody that comes to work in his administration. And so now we move to chapter 9. And chapter 9 is perhaps a more tender, more compassionate, and less violent chapter than we've been encountering uh, these past several weeks. This chapter is about how David, in fulfilling one of the vows that he made to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24, It's about how he is taking care of Saul's family and his progenies, especially here where he takes care of Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. So I want to reread what Tom read for us, and then we're going to spend quite a bit of time unpacking this first paragraph. And David said to people in his administration, is there anyone still, that word still is actually important, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So Jonathan is Saul's son, David's good friend. Both of them were killed in 1 Samuel 31 uh, during that war with the Philistines. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, 
Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that, I, that you should show regard for, such, for a dead dog such as I? So I want to make three textual notes before we move forward and, and start unpacking this. Um, first of all, that word kindness that we see, David wants to show him kindness. Uh, it's, that word in our culture and in English, is, is just, it's a little bit bland, and, and it's even maybe sort of overused. But, so I, I, would, I would argue that the English language is kind of ineffective in, in translating the incredible depth and weight and power of this Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is hesed. Uh, many times it's actually translated as loving kindness, which starts to get a little bit more at the weight of this word. Uh, the word literally means to show favor, to bless, and to unconditionally love. It's a word that communicates full-throated sacrifice, commitment, and support. So please don't just blow by this word. When the New Testament speaks of God's kindness to us through Jesus... This is the word that the New Testament authors, though they are writing in Greek, this is the word that they have in mind. This word has said. Uh, second of all, uh, this place where Mephibosheth was living, Lodabar, the name Lodabar in Hebrew means barren or without pasture. In other words, there, there are no natural agricultural resources in this region where Mephibosheth was living. It's not a place that any of us would like to live. So Mephibosheth's situation is, is that he, he not only has this chronic, never-ending, debilitating injury to his feet, but where he lives kind of stinks as well. So this is a big break for Mephibosheth. And, and that third text is, what of this foot injury? How did this happen? Well, we're actually told in 2 Samuel chapter 4, that as they were fleeing the final extermination of Ishbosheth's forces, we talked about that last week and the week before, when they were fleeing, the nurse who was carrying little Mephibosheth dropped him and permanently injured his feet. We have no other details for that. It's like, how did, how did one dropping of this child make it so that his feet would never, ever work? But that's apparently what happened. Uh, but one of the things I want you to notice is this. In their context and in their culture, so we're talking 3,200 years ago, Mephibosheth would have been referred to and identified only through his injury. That's the way they would have seen him. That would have been his identity. They would have even had a name for him. But David only calls him by his name. Notice how many times David uses his name in this chapter. 
This is David refusing to allow Mephibosheth's injury to define him and actively giving Mephibosheth dignity as an image bearer of God. That's an important part of this story. So now, let's recognize that this narrative is quite different than the ethos um, uh, of most of what we've covered so far in this series. Uh, Instead of one of the story's characters looking for someone to kill, David is actually looking for someone to bless. And he finds someone, Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. Now, you may be asking why. Why in the midst of all this rough stuff that we've been through in this series so far, why, why now this? And I think that's a legit, legitimate question, and I'll try to answer it. Um, first of all, I'll just tell you, the obvious gospel themes that we see in this passage, I mean, th- this should just be obvious, and we're certainly going to get to that. I'm going to spend time on that. But also, David here, anyway, is in line with the Lord, but not for long, be here next week, Um, but he is here in line with the Lord, and not only is David dedicating the tribute that he's receiving from all of these other peoples to the Lord, but he's also fulfilling this promise that he made to Saul way back in 1 Samuel 24, even if it's only a guise just so that he can honor Jonathan's son. So, both... Both come up, he's doing this for Jonathan's son, but he's also doing it for the household of Saul. Um, And so, uh, we have to understand he's doing it for both. But in verse 1, David says this, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake? So again, remember in 1 Samuel 24, David and Saul had this opportunity to kill one another, and they didn't, and they had this conversation, and Saul asked David to promise that when he was king... He would take care of Saul's remaining family, and David agreed. But that word translated still in the Hebrew means two things simultaneously. It means that David was already taking care of other of Saul's descendants. It means that there were others besides Mephibosheth that David was already taking care of. And second of all, It's David recognizing that he has a continuing obligation for the entirety of his reign for anyone who falls into this category. So he's just making sure that his promise is being fulfilled. This indicates that David has been and will continue to fulfill his promise to Saul. But he does say for Jonathan's sake. This is an important detail because it reminds us of David's continued grief over Jonathan's death that he lost his best friend in that war with the Philistines. And perhaps this relative of Jonathan's, this son of Jonathan, could help fill that gap. But notice in the rest of the paragraph, the house of Saul and Saul keep coming up. So this also makes it clear that although Jonathan continues certainly to be on David's mind, David is also doing this because he knows he he has an oath to Saul that he must continue to fulfill. So enter Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, David's going to take care of him for the sake of both Jonathan and Saul. And actually, he's going to do more than just take care of Mephibosheth. So do two de- details, two details that keep coming up in this text. Mephibosheth, <laughs> here we go, Mephs, <laughs> not meth, Mephs feet are injured, he can't walk. And it's not just that David is going to provide for him but that he will always eat at the king's table. That's a very important detail. And we know that scripture does not provide details without purpose. It doesn't mean that we always know what the details mean, 
but we knew, do know that they mean something. And in this case, we do know what each of these details means, and we also know that these details are connected. So let's start with the second one first. He's going to be eating at David's table. To fulfill his promise to Saul, all David had to do was provide for Mephibosheth. You know, all he had to do was set him up an apartment, make sure he had grocery money and transportation, maybe some health insurance, and that's about it. That's all David really had to do for him. But in an incredible Old Testament picture of gospel, New Testament gospel grace and favor, David goes way beyond this simple obligation. David doesn't just give Mephibosheth a place to live, but he gives all of Saul's property to him. And and David had every right to keep Saul's property, but he gives him all of Saul's property, and Saul had a lot of property. And and so Mephibosheth is not going to live in a borrowed domicile, but rather his name is going to be on the title of this property. But also, David doesn't just give him groceries. Instead, Mephibosheth will eat the very same food that the king eats. Uh, and, and, and just let me, so think about king. Were they eating commoners' food back then? Were they scrambling around for whatever was available? Were they, were they having fights with their spouse and their family about, well, we're we going to go here, we're we going to go here? Were they worried about the cost of the restaurant or the cost of the, of the uh, let's go to Safeway because I got coupons, let's not go to Sprouts because they're, whatever, okay? They're not arguing about any of that. They're going to eat. They're not eating at McDonald's, they're eating at Steak 44, okay, every single night. Which, by the way, wouldn't be a bad gig, okay? Um, so here you go. The food at the king's table was bussin'. Let me just tell you that right now. Okay? I was told to say that. I get $10 from somebody now, anyway. Yeah, Caleb's very excited. I'm so embarrassed. Some of you, your phones just came out. B-U-S-S-I-N. Look it up, okay? I had no idea what it meant either, okay? And it's not bad, okay? So. So, but here's the other thing. Here's the other thing about table that's really important, again, in their context, especially. Table, if you're going to invite somebody to your table where you eat, it's not just that you're putting some food out for somebody and whoever is welcome. This is, this is an indication of deep friendship, of intimacy, of vulnerability, of giving. It's a symbol of belonging. It is a symbol of strict, permanent belonging. David says to Mephibosheth, who believes himself, Mephibosheth believes himself to be totally undeserving. And in virtually every culture and worldly way, he was undeserving. David is saying to him, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. Eat at my table. Eat here and belong here as if you're one of my own children. This is all grace. This is all unmerited favor. It's above and beyond. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. Through the cross and the resurrection, God invites us to his table. Through the cross and resurrection, God says, you belong in my kingdom. God says, don't be afraid. Through Jesus, he says, don't be afraid. Eat at my table. You are as my child. I have adopted you. You know, in their context, understand also that when a new king would enter his reign, he had every right, and very often he would exercise this right 
to go out and kill anybody who was left from the old reign because they could be seen as a threat to him. So David, rather than killing Mephibosheth because he was part of Saul's household, he blesses him in this incredible way. And remember, Mephibosheth brings nothing to the table. There's, there's no advantage for David to even bring him there. He's, he's, he's injured. He can't do anything. He, he, he has no resources to bring. Instead, he's going to be taking resources. There's nothing that he's going to bring. And, and Mephibosheth, to his credit, he gets this. In verse 8, he says, What am I that you would show such regard? I am nothing better than a dead dog. So dogs in, in the uh, Hebrew context, dogs were unclean. Dogs were awful. Dogs were a sign of, of, of wickedness even. And, and Mephibosheth is calling himself not just a dog, but he's calling himself a dead dog. He says, why would you show a dead dog this kind of love and grace? And so this is certainly a, a, a reference to his foot problem. The other detail that is so important here. So this second detail, Mephibosheth is not ambulatory. He has to be carried everywhere. Essentially, like I said, he has nothing of value to offer to David. He won't make David's reign any stronger. Rather, he's going to be a drain on the resources. It's also a reference to the fact that no matter his physical condition, the fact that he is related to Saul makes him a threat, makes him a potential enemy to David. So think about this. Now, in terms of merit or in terms of culture, but by any measure that you can pull out, Mephibosheth does not deserve any of this. Nothing. So here we go. I can't even wait to the end of the message to do this, to talk about this. I can't even wait to ask you, for those of you who are note takers, stop taking notes now. I just want you to listen, okay? Because it's too obvious. Some would even say it's too easy. The text has teed this up for us today. In this text, David is what's called a type or a portend of Jesus who is still to come. And what David is doing here is an Old Testament typecasting or shadowing of what Jesus has done for us in the New Testament. Ten years ago, we would have said it like this, Jesus is a truer and better David. And in this text, Mephibosheth is a type of all of us who have embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior because of the grace that he has favored us with through his crucifixion and his resurrections. We are the ones injured eternally and permanently by our sin. We are the ones who, like Mephibosheth, should say, why us? Why have you shown favor to me? We are the ones who have done nothing and can do nothing to merit this grace, to merit this love, to merit the mercy of Jesus Christ, paying for our sins on the cross and then giving us new life through his resurrection. We are also the ones who, because our sin has separated us from God, without Jesus, we are described in the New Testament as enemies of God. And I recognize how that hurts people's delicate self-esteem. I'm not an enemy of God. Uh, God's doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. I'm not his enemy. If you're not reconciled to God, God sees you as somebody who's not with him, and you are, in fact, seen as an enemy of God. We're described that way without Jesus throughout Scripture. But through the cross of Christ, we are redeemed and reconciled to God. We are no longer enemies. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We are his friends. 
We are welcomed at God's table. We are welcomed into the kingdom. And even in the seemingly simplest of words in this text, we see the eternal nature of the gospel played out for us. Mephibosheth will eat at David's table always. Now that Hebrew word means forevermore, permanently, in perpetuity, and eternally. When you and I come to Jesus, when we accept the gospel into our lives, when we embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we also sit at Jesus' table forevermore, for eternity. And we didn't do anything to earn our salvation from the eternal consequences um, of our sin. And so here's the good news. We also can't do anything to break our salvation once we give our lives to Jesus. There's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do for it. Nothing we can do to break it. His favor and grace will be with us forever. So we talk about the gospel. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We talk about it every week at Redemption, one way or another. The gospel being that our sin has separated us from God and that the only thing that can redeem us, restore us, repair us, and heal us is to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. But it's not every week that it's as clear and obvious as this. This is is so easy and so clear and so obvious. And it's not every week that we're going to ask as clearly as I'm going to ask right now. If you haven't come to Jesus, will you now, today, will you come? Will will you welcome the Holy Spirit into your heart, into your mind, to open your eyes and your ears to the truth of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ? Will you come and give your life to Him? Will you recognize that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation? That that your own personal moral code, whatever it is, doesn't work? It's not helping? That, That unfortunately we're just not worthy enough without Jesus to stand before a holy God? But Jesus gives us that righteousness, that holiness, that worthiness, so that those who are in Christ right now stand holy and righteous before God. And I know you're sitting there going, yeah, but I got this hidden sin. I, I know. If you're in Christ, though, I recognize the tension of still living in this sinful world. Paul recognizes it. He writes about it in Romans chapter 7. But what does he say at the end of that tension where he's wrestling? You know, He says, I'm in Christ, but I still do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I'm supposed to do. He, what does he say at the end of it? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, doesn't matter. I am in Christ. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're asking you today, today would be a great day to come to Jesus. And that is essentially the story of the 66 books of the Bible. God is good, we're not good enough. The fact that we're not good enough is nobody's fault but our own. But God has gracefully and sacrificially given us redemption through Jesus. In a few minutes when I'm done, uh, during our response song, I just pray that you would come and talk to somebody in the wings. We'll have deacons, elders, pastors, staff there. So let's wrap this up. Let's read 9 through 13. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. 
but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at, king, at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. So I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but again, the shadowing of the gospel just continues in this paragraph as well. Um, Look who is doing none of the work. Mephibosheth. He's doing none of the work. And yet this grace is being bestowed on him. He's the recipient of the grace. He's the beneficiary of the favor. So all the work is being done and has been done for him, just like Jesus does for us. And again, look at verse 13. The author is making sure that we see these two details again. Mephibosheth is helpless, like we are when it comes to our salvation. And he will eat always at King David's table as one of his sons. So... Here's how we'll wrap today. If you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian, has it ever occurred to you that your place at Jesus' table is secure for all eternity? Have you ever just sat and pondered that for even 30 seconds? All eternity. You're there. You're secure. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians. We're, we're, We're there. It's the already but not yet. We're there, but we still have this life to live here. And Paul wrestles with that in Philippians chapter 1, if you're looking for more wrestling with the fact that we're we're saved and we're already in the kingdom, but we're not yet there because we still have to deal with this world. But it's a beautiful gift that we are sealed there for eternity. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus, my question would be, what is it about this deal that is keeping you away. So let me put it in terms of a deal. What is it about this deal that's keeping you away? Seems like all the terms are in our favor. Every single term is in our favor. So is it too easy? You're looking at it going, this is too easy. I've heard that one before. This is just too easy, Frank. Uh, Here's another one. I I have to do something for my redemption. I have to do something. I have to be involved in my own redemption. That just makes sense. Okay? Or maybe it's this. It's, you're, just, you're afraid of what your family and your friends and your coworkers might say. If, if, if you start using that name Jesus occasionally, you know, dropping it into conversations. They catch you in the break room reading the Bible or something. What are you going to say? You know? Hey, let me tell you something. I get it. I get it. I was 28 years old, listening to Richard Jackson preach at North Phoenix Baptist Church, just a few miles down the road here. 28 years old, 1987, listening to him preach. It's interesting. I'd never gone to church. I started going to that church because I wanted to get to know a girl. And God used that girl, that woman, to get me to know him. Isn't that amazing? That, that was Jackie, by the way. She's sitting there right now getting angry with me for bringing this up. But anyway, but that's how God 
save me. He, use, he uses this horizontal affiliation to say, I'm drawing you in. And, and when I would hear Richard preach, and, and on Wednesday nights when I'd hear Joe Ford teach the Bible, uh, here's what I was hearing. You don't do anything for your salvation. This is all Jesus on the cross through his resurrection. I hear this every single week. And here's what I'm thinking. For months, I was attending. <laughs> this is too easy. There's something wrong with this. Obviously, they just want my money. That's why it's too easy. I had every possible scheme going. It's too easy. It sounds too good. Yeah. Th- then I began to think, Phew. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. There's got to be something I can do to participate in this salvation, right? You know? Hey, God, take a look at my moral code. Doesn't that fit? (laughs) See, I don't steal very often, (laughs) you know? And then, of course, I'm thinking, what is my family going to think? What what are my coworkers going to think? I'm going to be so self-conscious when I tuck one of these things under my arm and I walk into a room. I had all of those same thoughts during that time. I just kept saying to myself, it's too easy, got to be something I can do, I'm afraid. But then there was a Wednesday night in June 1987, and I heard the message again from Joe Ford. And finally it dawned on me, and it wasn't just me going, oh, I get it now. The Holy Spirit brought these things to my attention. If he's God, and he is, he can do this any way he wants to. He doesn't need my help with it. He doesn't need my stamp of approval for this. And if he wants to make it easy for me, that's his prerogative. It's actually pretty cool that I don't have to do anything because that means I never have to keep track of anything. <laughs> I never have to, I, here you go. I never have to whip out my redemption resume. Here's what I did Monday for God. Here's what I did Tuesday. Didn't do anything Wednesday. I was busy. Here's what I did Thursday. Okay. God's grace can cover Wednesday, but I've got to take care of Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I never have to pull out a resume. You know why? My resume is Christ on the cross and the resurrection. That's it. That's it. That's the res- resume. And then I began to realize it's not going to matter what my family and friends say to me because all that will do is give me an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And then it will be up to God and, and, and his, uh, his grace and His mercy and His discipline what He does with that message. No matter how flawed the message is because, you know, for years I wasn't sure if I knew what I was talking about, you know, because I didn't know the Bible that well. That drove me to learn God's word because I knew, I, I knew that in this word I was going to find grace and truth and a genuine understanding of what it means to be reconciled to God. So I started pursuing this as well. But that was all God's grace in my life. That was the Holy Spirit illuminating that for me. And I know the Holy Spirit can do the same for you too. What would keep you from coming? Let's pray together. God, you are good and your son is great. I don't know that there's anything else we can say. Let's just pray again and be reminded that you are God and that is good and we praise you for that. That you have saved us through your son, Jesus Christ.
and that is good. And that you are continuing to work in our lives today, showing us your favor, showing us your discipline, giving us your wisdom, and loving us unconditionally. God, thank you for that. God, now as we move into our time of reflection, response, and taking communion, just pray again. Your spirit would be welcomed by all of us. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, we, we, we get to come to the Lord's table today. What a privilege it is to engage in this sacrament of communion. Jesus is with his friends on that night that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. They're eating the Passover meal and he picks up the bread and he breaks it. He changes the meal slightly. He says, this is my body which has been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's, he's forecasting his body being broken on the way to and on the cross. And then after they had supped, he picked up the cup, the cup of thanksgiving, It's filled with wine, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul tells us later on, he says, as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So what a privilege it is for us to be able to proclaim his death until he comes again. And in that proclamation, it's a confession and a celebration. So come in thanksgiving, Come with joy, come with gladness that we have a Savior and that He's done all the work for us. And we'll sing a song during that communion, then we'll sing another song after communion to close out uh, the service. Tyler Thompson will come and give us our benediction. In the meantime, we'll have deacons and elders and pastors standing in the wings. If you need to talk to anybody, pray with anybody, ask them questions, we'd be happy to do that. If our communion servers would please come forward, if our... um, If our deacons and elders and pastors would come, let's do all that now.
the Lord together this morning. Our benediction comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Now may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.